Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin in the observation room at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law courtroom. And today, Stephanie, what are we talking about? Well, we're having another Newzilla episode, yeah. which is there's just so much going on and we're just trying to keep up. So we have quite a number of things. I thought I'd just give a quick C-59 update. And then, of course, we've had a what a, a, another deluge of reports that have come down. So we want to talk a little bit about the NISI COP in preparation for the National episode. Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Yes. Yep. Um, we're actually going to have some uh, representatives from that on our next episode. And, and one of the things we have to address is whether we've been pronouncing it NISI COP. I'm pretty sure they call it NISI COP. I always call it NSI cop. <laughs> NSI so cop. It sounds more like something totally that's different. on cable TV. It does, right? Anyways, um, and then uh, just quickly, we already talked about the CSE report in our podcast episode with the uh, chief electoral officer, but I thought it'd be worth just going through briefly. And then um, you had written down a Facebook delisting of the haters and the losers, which actually kind of got conflated because it happened on the same day as the CSE report. So we have a quick conversation with that, which is tying into some of our discussions about a hate speech. And then finally, we're going to try and, and cram in two things. One, you've done an ATIP access to information on uh, security clearances for NISI COP, NSI COP, whatever we want to call it. And then finally, uh, just a couple of national security items in the federal budget, which came out like two months ago, but we haven't even gotten to yet because there's just been so much news. Right. So we'll see how far we can get in a reasonable period of time. Uh, that's a long list. Some of these issues we're going to come back to. So. Uh, the the Cop report, of course, uh, as you mentioned, we're going to have some guests and we'll, we'll go through how that uh, process works. So we, we won't try to do a salted earth on that report. Uh, we've already covered the uh, CSE report to some extent. So let's see how far we can get. So uh, do you want, do, let's start with the Cop report. Okay. Yeah. So, so it came out last week. Uh, yeah. It, we're recording this on Monday. So it came out uh, last Tuesday. I published my report on it in Open Canada if you want to really go into my Your thoughts. report on the report? My report on the report. So bottom line up front here, both you and I agree that this is a very good report uh, in general. We think that, I think we both have agreed that the NICE COP, they did a really good series of investigations. But the thing that I really liked the most was that they took their educative role seriously. They seem to have understood that they are speaking not just to, you know, national security community, but they're also speaking to their fellow MPs and to their fellow citizens. And to my mind, one of the most significant elements of this report was that it gave Canadians an understanding of what the national security community in Canada even looks like. And, you know, it says, look, there's this core agency, but there's these other agencies as well. And that's valuable, right? Because people don't think of the Public Health Agency of Canada as an intelligence receiving organization, but of course it is, because it has to be. Uh, and And that's very significant. So, you know, the community is broad, the potential reach of NISICOP is broad, and that's uh, good to know. Yeah, and I think that they, they obviously consciously went out of their way to roadmap the, the community as a whole and the mandates of the community. And keep in mind that we have not actually seen the government itself issue a distillation of the security intelligence community since 2004, I think, was the the statement. Oh, in the um, uh, the the uh, our only ever national security. Yeah, strategy. and before that, I believe it was an immediate aftermath of 2001. There was a document that described the, the scope of the community. So this is long past due, and I think it's very useful to have an independent body 
assess uh, and and uh, illuminate what it is that these these bodies do. Of course, then they go into the detail on their reviews, and, and we'll have an opportunity to talk to them about how they selected these reviews. But they had a, sort of a broad uh, review on on efficacy issues, and then they had a more specific review on a specific subset of the intelligence community that is national defense. Now, I, sh- I should indicate that I, I agree with you uh, in your initial comments that this is a terrific report. It's an adult report. It's not... Adult, or it's also kept thinking it's an adult report. It, it's meant to communicate a sophisticated degree of information to an interested audience uh, in a way that I think will uh, is informative to even those who spend a substantial amount of time trying to figure out how all this works. And so I, I found it very impressive. They name names, right? And so they're not... Uh, they're not wary about, for example, uh, naming Russia and China in the context of espionage and foreign interference. They're not. Uh, there are some peculiar redactions that we can infer the names from, but but you know it's not it's not heavily redacted, and it really goes into a sophisticated level of depth that, frankly, is not echoed in any real way, at least recently, in the reports of CERC. Uh, and in the CSE commissioner, the CSE commissioner, to its credit, in a few past reports, has tried to walk through in greater detail exactly some of the workings of CSE in an educative manner. But that's generally not been the sort of things those review bodies have engaged in. So this is actually a very valuable uh, teaching tool. I agree with you. Now, on the substance of the report, I should also indicate that you know they they do bring me in every once in a while to noodle through issues and so um, conflict of interest alert conflict of interest alert right so but you know I even in the absence of that I would I would I would stand by my initial comments Uh, the two focus areas were intelligence priorities and how they are set at the center of government and I learned a lot because that has been a black box for my entire career Uh, and then on defense intelligence which has also been uh, a black box for my entire career Uh, the most I've known is frankly just what I've been able to extract from idle conversations and so this is a very, very uh, informative deep dive on two central pillars of the way that the security and intelligence community operates in Canada uh, that have yet to, um, until this point, receive uh, the attention that they frankly deserve. So a credit to the committee for choosing these two topics. Well, I have no conflict of interest, and I would say it's a good report. Um, the, the only One of the weird things, though, was the redactions. Uh, sometimes they actually say what the redactions were, and sometimes there's just three stars. Yeah. Um, in the previous report from Atwal, the Atwal report, which we talked about in December, I think we both agreed that it was the redactions probably could have gone into more detail. We saw that in this report. Uh, but so, not so in all a sanit- cases. A sanitized summary of, of what's captured in the redactions. Yeah, yeah, which I think is far more transparent, but it wasn't universally applied. And I think the committee needs to explain that redaction policy a little bit better in its next report. That's something I'd like to see. Sometimes maybe it's just too sensitive. They can't even say what it's about. And then sometimes, you know, they, they clearly can, but, you know, state that somewhere in the report because otherwise it's really inconsistent. Mm, yeah. Did you want to talk about uh, things that stood out in terms of the actual findings? Sure. Yeah. So I, for me, I think what really kind of stood out was, I like you, the intelligence priorities process. I was a little bit more familiar with that based on the fact I, I did work in the community. For our listeners who haven't had a chance to actually read the report, and it's, you know, over 100 pages, but you should, you should read the report. Basically, the intelligence priorities process, they found that it works okay. The cabinet will sit down and they will decide what the intelligence priorities are for the government as a whole for two years. That's basically set for two years. And then that gets translated into standing intelligence requirements, which are 
updated every six months. And uh, that then, I believe, goes into a ministerial letter, which then goes out to the various collection agencies. So all happy there. But in principle, in principle, right. Yeah. Uh, they did find one case where um, uh, CSIS apparently neglected to do this for uh, an 18 month period, which is uh, was not great. Um, but apparently that's now been addressed, which is, which is good news. I think there was two findings here that was that were really interesting. They're kind of relate to each other. First is that there's 400 standing intelligence requirements, right. uh, which you know in the business called service. Which which reminds me of the way we establish our faculty strategic plan. <laughs> everything's a priority and everything's nothing a priority. is right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem is that like there's 400 mm. of these and they're all pretty specific. And I, I should I should actually you know break this down. So I think an example of an intelligence priority would be something like terrorist threats to Canada. And that so would, very high level. Yeah, very high level, and then that gets broken down. So that into that very would be specific. so that would be the, the sort of the high level cabinet level uh, directive on intelligence priorities, and then below that there's these SIRs. Yeah, SIRs. SIRs, right? Yeah. And so, and there are 400 of those. You're saying? Yeah, there's 400 of those, and so like that example would be like threats from the Islamic State. Right, and we don't know this by the way. We're just speculating because yeah. those are redacted. Yeah. So <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't possibly give out a classified information right. on a podcast, Craig. But the uh, so and as you said, the problem is that the the priority level for those is like it, everything's marked as like the top priority, mm-hmm. usually tier one or whatever it is. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that you know as you say, if everything's a priority, then then nothing's a priority, and it makes it very hard for the community itself to actually then figure out where it should put its resources, right? So that that's one thing. Uh, and then so the kind of related, you know, corollary to that is that the process itself could be far more strategic and less tactical. You know, the community as a whole could actually get together and think a little bit harder about what it really needs to know, what its real priorities are, and then that would actually provide better guidance to the communities. So right. the, the two very interesting and good findings. And again, we all learned a lot from the information that's in this report. Right. And so so basically there's the inbound, uh, how should we generate these intelligence priorities? Then there's the translation of those priorities once set yep. back to the uh, intelligence services. And, you know, one of the things I noted was the, the, the actual communication of these priorities at the level of each agency is through ministerial direction, but they made the point that sometimes the ministerial directions seem to be drafted in isolation and that there's not necessarily consistency in, in how they interpret the uh, intelligence priorities. And so there, there's a risk that there may not be a shared understanding of what it is that these priorities are. Yeah, exactly. And so, so more coordination, more collaboration, I think it's, it's a good finding, frankly. So I should say that was the framework review. Right, so and the, then the broad sort of strategic efficacy assessment. Right. And then so then they did an activity review, mm-hmm. which is then they looked at the activities of the Department of Defense, which mm-hmm. has never been done before. I think most of us appreciate the fact that the Department so of the Defense So in, the intelligence uses, activities, not the full gamut, but the intelligence activities. Yes. And and I think most of us appreciate that the Department of Defense uses intelligence in its operations. I mean, the idea that it wouldn't would be would be pretty shocking. But we don't actually know much about it. And I think this was this is the issue that garnered the most attention. I mean, trying to sell the intelligence priorities process to the media last week was a bit of a hard sell. But this defense issue is actually interesting, and I think it's something we're almost certainly going to have another podcast episode on. So let's just summarize what was in there, and then um, I think we're going to have Blaze Cathcart and Phil Lagasse come in, and we're going to have like the nerdiest right on the royal prerogative and its uh, pros and cons. Yeah, we we're already making the... English Civil War roundhead <laughs> jokes, so you know where that episode's going. Yes, yeah, so uh, the prerogatives. Oh my god. No. Um, so the main finding, I think, is that there's no wrongdoing. 
right? They didn't find any wrongdoing. But the key question they ask is whether or not the size and scale of defense intelligence activity actually rivals that of our core collection agencies who have a statutory footing. And therefore, does the Department of National Defense need an act which to kind of govern the intelligence activities that it uses? Right, because um, it's all done under prerogative. Right. And, and that, do you want to explain what that means? Because, I mean, when I think prerogative, I think of Bobby so, Brown, but I was also a child of the 80s. Right. So I'll give you the doctrinal view, and then we'll bring Philippe uh, Lagasse in to, to challenge my sort of myopic lawyer's view from his deeper historical and political science vision of, of the prerogative. But the, the prerogative. The dorkiest fight of all time. The dorkiest fight of all time. So the prerogative <laughs> is that historical power exercised by the monarch in England that was plenary and absolute and was essentially the source of all law until such time as we had parliamentary supremacy, hence the reference to the Civil War and the Glorious Revolution of 1688. You know, we could go into a lot of detail here. But the bottom line is that the prerogative is now subordinate to legislation, to parliamentary legislation, because parliament is supreme. And so when parliament occupies a particular subject matter area through legislation, it has the effect of displacing the prerogative. And so over the passage of time, of course, parliament has legislated vast amounts of legislation, the prerogative is reduced to a narrow subset of what it once was. And so it's the it's often referred to as the residue of, of historic royal powers. And the key prerogatives that remain that are of interest to our subject matter area are the royal prerogative over foreign affairs, hence entering into treaties, that's a prerogative power, and the royal prerogative over defense. And so the issue then is to what extent has the prerogative over defense been eroded with time. And you know there are statutory provisions in the National Defense Act, for example, that govern aid of the civil power. That is when the Canadian Armed Forces can be called out in support of the civil authorities. There's the so-called public service provisions. And so those are all things that once would have been strictly prerogative powers. Another example is CSE. Up until 2001, CSE was operating strictly under a prerogative uh, source of law. And now it it's still is until C-59 passes. Well, no, but no, National Defense Act, since the National Defense Act in 2001 oh, amendments, right. it's had a statutory footing, which means that it has to fall squarely. It, what it does needs to fall squarely within the statutory framework because it has no residual authority. The national defense activities of the Canadian Armed Forces, in terms of certainly in terms of uh, international deployments, are entirely a prerogative matter which means that the Prime Minister in principle can wake up one morning and decide to deploy the Canadian Armed Forces without recourse to any parliamentary approval. There's no statutory framework for that. Uh, now, of course, it is still governed by legal standards. The prerogative itself embeds certain expectations, and I would say the prerogative embeds an expectation of compliance with, uh, for example, the laws of armed conflict, international law. Uh, and so it's not a lawless uh, source, but it, it is a source that's indefinite in the sense that you can't look on a piece of paper and say, here's the precise scope uh, as to the standards that have to be applied in a given circumstance. Right. So I, I, like the most basic way of putting that is the fact that, you know, Parliament doesn't have to authorize a military mission. Yeah. No, nor has Parliament spoken on the uh, in the same way it has, say, with CSE about the remit and scope of CSE activities. It hasn't spoken that same way in relation to, say, military intelligence. Right. And so, for example, it says in this in the current National Defense Act, and it will continue in the post-C-59 architecture, that in terms of its foreign intelligence activities, CSE cannot direct those activities at a Canadian or a person in Canada. Right. So that is prescribed in a legislative framework, which means that if CSE were to do that, setting aside whatever charter issues might arise, if CSE were to do that, it would be outside a statutory mandate, which means it has no lawful authority to do so. 
prior to 2001, in principle, under a prerogative, if there, if you were arguing there was a, a defense of necessity to, to focus on Canadians or persons in Canada, CSE could be tasked with that undertaking. In fact, if you go way back in the history of, of the way that our intelligence services have worked up until you know the 1970s, uh, you can find prerogative instruments issued by, the, in one case, the Prime Minister, uh, authorizing uh, intelligence collection on Canadians without a statutory basis. Right, the, the, the world's moved on since then. Right? right. So just bringing it back to the report, and then we can get kind of circle back to this issue, they raise a number of concerns. They talk about uh, gaps with internal compliance, in particular the, the Ministerial Directive on Defense Intelligence. They're worried about a lack of external review or any kind of really standardized process for interdepartmental consultation. And they raise an example in the report where they were supposed to consult with Global Affairs Canada, and they didn't. And there's also concern about a lack of transparency. And and then, like, you know, they talk about this idea that the Department of Defense basically says, okay, we have this crown prerogative. And then they say, we engage in defense intelligence activities to support our mission. And so we do this when there's a nexus with the mission. And then NYSECOP said, okay, well, what's a nexus? And then the Department of Defense said, well, it's a term of art. <laughs> In other words, there's no standard for what a nexus to allow defense intelligence activities to take place to support a mission actually is. And that's what I think the NYSECOP is actually concerned about, is that, yes, it's crime prerogative, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of standardization around some of these key questions like, when do you consult with other departments and ministries? When is it okay for you to actually engage in the collection of, of information, perhaps on Canadians itself? Something that we govern pretty strictly in the CSE and CSIS context, but aren't paying really any kind of attention to the Department of Defense. So that's when they raise this really interesting question of, do we need a Defense Intelligence Act? And I don't think this will be the last time we talk about this. No, it is a really good question. Because we're going to talk about it with Blaze and, yeah, and, and Phil, as we've already I've said. So, um, <laughs> we're going to have very strong views on it. Yeah, so I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, again, there's no there's no smoking gun here. There's nothing on fire, which is which is really great. So so far, because we should add that they've decided to actually undertake another report on this issue because they found that the Department of Defense accidentally said they said uh, had did not provide all information that they should have on certain issues. So there's going to be another report, I believe, on how the Department of Defense is treating information it collects on Canadians, which could be very important for issues, say, like targeting Canadians in Syria or collecting information on Canadians on Canadian territory who may be seen as posing a threat to, say, a military base. So all of this is actually really important. I think there's actually charter implications of it as well. So we'll see what happens. And um I imagine there's a few people at the Department of Defense with their hair on fire right now. Well, but you make a good point about the fact that it's validating at some level to have a reviewer come in and exhaustively review your operations. And as you've suggested, it's not like this was a that what's conveyed by this report is a screaming lack of standards. The report is very careful in, in suggesting that there are standards, and this is a question of of peer review, essentially, in an effort to improve uh, practices. And, and it's very validating, I think, to have a reviewer do that. And one of the arguments for a reviewer is that the reviewer can come in and assess a government department and actually give it the equivalent of a clean bell of health, or, you know, here's room for improvement, but it's not like you're operating in a standardless black hole. Uh, and I think that's actually very, very valuable in terms of the credibility, then, of these institutions. And that's that's one of the virtues of the NYSECOP. 
There you go. We got through it. We got to it in a very nerdy roundabout way, but it's a good report. And if you haven't had the chance to read it, uh, maybe save it for some beach reading <laughs> if the weather ever gets better. But uh, yeah, good report. So last time you gave them a C? No, I'm giving them an A this time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, not, not out of conflict of interest. Not out of conflict of interest. Yeah, I, I, I would give them an A too. I mean, I thought the, I actually thought the, the, the prior report was, was decent too. So, you know, they've, they've done a good job. They should be very happy. Next. So the CSE report, which we've already kind of talked about, so we're going to spend a huge amount of time on this. If For listeners who haven't listened to our previous episode, we spoke with the chief electoral officer and some of the findings that report are discussed. So this report was effectively an update to the 2017 report. I would say it's less groundbreaking overall, but that's actually a good thing. Right. I mean, if we're still being shocked by what's happening, that's bad. And a lot of reporters, you know, I, I spoke to last Monday and they said, well, what's the big deal here? Or, you know, there's nothing, you know, we already know all this. And I said, good, <laughs> good. If you know that this is a thing, then that's a good news story because that's what we want. We're trying to prime the media, prime Canadians to have some kind of understanding that this is the kinds of activities that that are happening. So I that was one of the positive things I took away. The main finding, again, that we're going to be targeted, but importantly, it's not going to look like what happened in the U.S. in 2016. What the CSE report says is that the activity that's going to occur in Canada is going to look like what's happened in other advanced democracies, and then they provide some examples of that. The election itself is not likely to be attacked. It's more that there will be an attempt to actually influence voters. And I think this is this is really interesting, is that the political candidates and parties are more vulnerable than the actual election itself. And what's more vulnerable than all of that are actually voters. So the, what they seem to be suggesting is that adversarial states, they only name Russia, and we can get back to that in a second, have become good at, at, at targeting voters to, and to get them to believe that that the election isn't legitimate, that uh, there is interference, um, and that, you know, so the election is already rigged, it's corrupt, and, you know, all these kinds of things. And they don't want people to believe in the democratic process. So that's effectively what they're targeting. Um, and I would say, like, the final kind of major takeaway here is that really the assess that the threat activity has actually increased since 2017. So that's a bad thing that the fact that the situation's probably gotten worse and, and not better. So, so that's actually a, a promising report and I agree with you that in, in part this is about mainstreaming some of these conversations. You can imagine how controversial a report like this would have been prior to 2016 but but now of course we're habituated to conversations about foreign interference in electoral processes and this this helps i think uh, educate uh, a broader public about what it is that one should be wary of now of course the difficulty is putting this into practice so it's one thing to say beware of false information but of course we tend to believe the narratives that we prefer and to disagree with information that contradicts those narratives and so uh, being aware that we're being manipulated or there's a prospect of manipulation doesn't necessarily make us any less vulnerable to it exactly. and so this goes back to the conversation we've been having with people on and on uh, throughout uh, the winter about uh, how one actually deals with educating a broader populace and what does it mean in terms of social media education and the uh, the idea of being able to digest information and process it properly it's going to be a, a perennial problem, although it's not a new problem, I suppose. It's just a scaled up problem. Yeah. And like, to be fair, I do worry a little bit about us. Are we going too far down the panic route? Um, the key thing is that Elections Canada, it, it's going to be very hard to hack them. It, the, our ballots are on paper. They're subject to scrutineers. We keep the ballots. I mean, that's that part of it is OK. And 
I worry that the narrative itself, if it's not, if we're not careful about it, it actually can, I think, go too far. It can actually provoke panic. Mm. And then people automatically will think any result will be compromised by some kind of foreign influence activity. I think it's good that we are putting these reports out. I think it's good that we have a system in place, which we're going to have to talk about in another podcast because we haven't even gotten to that whole uh, site task force that they've put together, which is the uh, Security and Intelligence Threats to Election Task Force. But um, I worry uh, about a couple of things that, you know, the fact is that if we're if we're not careful in, with this narrative, I worry that we we can just make people automatically lose faith, right? And then and then whoever wants to interfere with our election has already won anyways. Right. The other issue is, of course, it talks about Russia, but Russia is not the only actor in this space. For anyone who was online in August of last year, we most of us probably saw the Saudi trolls who were online who were frankly bad at it. But, you know, these countries get better at it over time. There's also been allegations that, you know, India, Iran, Venezuela, that they're all operating in this space. Uh, China is engaged in probably in foreign influence activities. Certainly that was in the NYSECOP report, but not on Twitter in the same kind of way, I think. But they may be involved more on uh, social media apps coming out of China, like like WeChat. Um, so, you know, there, there's a different kind of, of foreign influence for example, in these particular ways, they, all, they also may seek to to hack political parties, mm. frankly. So, you know, I, it, it's kind of good that they keep pointing at Russia, but I think it's kind of like Marsha, 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 Russia, Russia, Russia. There's there's other people in this space as well. But you know what? Overall, it's a good report. It, it, it There's not that much new in it, and, and that's a good thing. And I hopefully we're getting used to it. I just worry about hitting the panic button or kind of overemphasizing maybe just Russia's role when other countries are, may also be looking to get involved in this right. space Right, so we, well. we have nothing to fear but our own cognitive biases. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Um, and then, so then there was the other issue of Facebook, which got kind of conflated because on the day that this report came out, Facebook announced that it was actually blocking certain far-right nationalist groups. And we talked about some of these individuals on the podcast. This one individual who actually made a threat saying that, you know, people should shoot CSIS officers in the head because they are in cahoots with human rights officials there. And then, of course, some of the more uh, notorious far-right individuals as well. So, and and then, of course, Katerina Gould, who's the, the Minister of Democratic Institutions, made statements to the fact that she was not pleased with the way social media companies were actually guiding their own behavior so that kind of became into this and another development as well on monday was that the uk put out an online harms white paper because it's looking at actually potentially even uh, going even further than i think pretty much any other western country and in putting out standards and creating something a, a duty of care yeah other than germany germany's uh yeah i guess germany germany's uh, in this space as well um but this would be creating a duty of care, which would create actually certain liabilities on social media companies with regards to what content they actually host online. So Monday was a busy day, uh, in short. Uh, do you have any takes on this? Well, I mean, we sort of had a conversation, you and I, before we started this podcast about how these things get conflated in the public mind. So uh, it's one thing for a social media company to, which is a private actor and, and creates a private space, although I know a lot of people are contesting because of the scale issue, whether that can that, that classic demarcation between private and public really works for social media. But the bottom line is that it's, it's a private space and it's subject to its terms of use. And the question is whether it's been enforcing uh, sufficiently those terms of use. And that's an important conversation to have. If we start now talking about the state superimposing on top of those terms of use 
expectations, content-rich expectations about what can and cannot be said on these platforms, then it's a, it's a quite a different conversation because we're then into a, decision, a discussion about free expression because free expression is a right one has vis-a-vis the state. And if the state is telling you you cannot say this or that uh, in this particular venue, then it's a question of regulation of speech. Now, we do regulate speech, uh, and there is some speech that's unprotected. So threats of violence and violence, that is unprotected speech in Canadian constitutional law. After that, though, uh, for the most part, you have to justify constraints on speech under Section 1 of the Charter, which is a, a constraint on speech that's uh, demonstrably necessary in a free and democratic state. So that gets much tougher. And so take, for example, hate speech. Hate speech is free expression. It survived constitutional challenge in a deeply split court in the Keekstra case, only in a Section 1 justification. The court has regularly said that constraints on speech that is merely offensive is a violation of free speech and is not justified under Section 1. So it it becomes a very complicated conversation, and it's a much more complicated conversation here in Canada, which is much more in alignment with sort of a North American view on free expression than it is in Europe, which in comparative sense has very, very weak free expression protections. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the one sort of cautionary note is that we shouldn't rush to emulate what's happening in Europe and in Australia and other places that don't have codified constitutional expectations. And that's the sort of narrow legal analysis. The broader analysis is that I, you know, I'm enough of a libertarian to be really, really suspicious about the state moving in the direction of content-rich regulation. And so it really depends. The devil will be in the details. Exactly what are we talking about here if we are moving, if there is a conversation we have in this country about what it is that we want to police content-wise in terms of creating whether it's a liability or some emphatic expectation about what can be said and not said. That was a, that was very reasonable, Craig. I'm a little disappointed because I kind of wanted to have a screaming match. But <laughs> um, no, I think that, that actually is um, probably the right view. I think... I, you know, I chatted a lot about this on Twitter over the weekend um, about this white paper, and uh, I think people think that it's automatically going to be shut down by the Constitution if we did actually ever try to put on any kind of regulations on, on speech in, in the online space. What I reject is that there's this idea that you have to have like a free and open internet or else you're China, you know, that there's no in-between here. I think we can have a reasonable discussion as to, as to whether or not that that's the case. Most of our speech online is already regulated through algorithms that are just owned by private companies. This idea that uh, what we see online is some kind of, you know, like some kind of completely free uh, system of information that we have is is just wrong, right? It's all monetized. Right, by private actors. By private actors, not the government. Right. Which which I I respect is, is different, but... You know, at some point when you have like you know, one point whatever billion people on yeah. your platform, um, you Th- know. that's this issue of scale and whether we can really use the classic demarcation between private and public to, to apply to social media, which yeah. after all is is in, in some cases dependent on a license, either literal or, or social to exist. But it makes it makes me happy, I should say, that our knee jerk reaction to this is don't, because if everyone's reaction is do, that's probably not a good sign for a healthy democratic value but i i just think that what's interesting about the white paper is not a lot it's, it's a white paper it raises uh, 18 different questions about how the government could get involved in this space 
And um, I think it, these are at least questions that we could have an adult conversation about in Canada. And maybe we find that the answer is no. It's just the research is too grave for us to be able to do so. But, you know, having witnessed, you know, I have a friend who has convinced herself to take herself off her meds based on information that she's finding online about how, you know, her medications are, are killing her and not helping her and things like this. And that's been sad and unfortunate to watch yeah well there's all sorts of rules on false advertising and the like so you're right there's no absolute in the world of free speech as i've said hate speech is uh, survives section one uh, justification and we do have provisions for teardown orders that as best i know as i keep saying on this podcast have not been used in relation to hate speech there is uh, this conversation we're having now in relation to c59 and maybe this is our pivot point about the the uh, speech crime that was introduced by bill c51 which includes also uh, provisions that allow terrorist propaganda to be removed from the internet. Uh, the debate right now, and I think you were at the Senate committee, maybe you uh, can provide a bit of an overview on that. They had their first hearings this week. The, there is this view that, that seems to be articulated that, that the rollback on the terrorism promotion and advocacy offense from C-51, the rollback in C-59, which would convert it to, frankly, a conventional counseling uh, crime, that that goes too far and that there has to be an intermediate uh, position. Uh, so that is very much a speech issue. Uh, and we've taken the view that the, that speech, uh, my, my own view, frankly, is the C-51 crime goes too far constitutionally. But there is a space in which terrorism propaganda, that is, information that's tied to violence or threats to violence, properly falls within the regulatory competency of the state terms of teardown orders uh finding that soft spot is the is the more difficult analysis and the, the closest precedent we have right now is uh, the one we referred to a moment ago which is that hate speech provision which survived constitutional challenge in the keekstra case which has features including a requirement that the person really intends the uh, the hateful outcome and also certain defenses that are not present uh, in relation to the current existing terrorism speech crime so the, yeah. he was involved in Holocaust denial? Holocaust denial. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, so C-59 then? Yeah. Because we're not going to solve free speech on this podcast. No, okay. but we do enjoy it. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. It's really terrifying to me. All right. Um. So I did go to the uh, C-59 Senate debut at committee. I, I couldn't resist. It was on Wednesday and I, I had some time. So um, as you say, I think there's really going to be two issues here. The first is uh, the conservatives who are, are kind of worried that this is a virtue signaling exercise. Uh, particularly on the counseling uh, offense, that that was the language I overheard. They they you know basically, they they think that you you're making it easier for people to engage in um, extremist speech, and I, I think we've discussed on the podcast that's probably not the case. If anything, it actually makes it easier to prosecute because of the changes that they've made. There's a very patient lawyer there from the Department of Justice who was trying to explain this, but uh, the senators. Uh, at least on the conservative side, really weren't having a lot of that. And I just, like, I mean, I get really frustrated with this because, you know, obviously I have my own bias that I like this bill and I want this bill to pass. And, you know, the idea that a bill that authorizes offensive cyber action is some kind of virtue signaling bill is really, to me, uh, just kind of mind-blowing. But there you have it. Well, we anticipated that the debate would hinge on these fairly narrow, relatively minor largely unimportant in the grand scheme of things provisions 
which resonated with a particular narrative that partisans are going to want to play with going into the electoral cycle and the rest of the really complex stuff, the stuff you and I really enjoy discussing would probably not receive the same attention. Now, whether that will remain true through the hearings, I doubt it. I think probably there will be a more uh, detailed assessment of some of the, the, so the, what we would consider the headline items. But uh, this is consistent. What you observed is consistent with our predictions. Yeah. And well, anyways, that's I mean, uh, poor Senator Gold, who is there. And he was you know, he did actually ask the heads of the services what happens if this bill doesn't pass. I, I think created an opportunity for them to talk about the urgency of this bill. So, so good for him for, for trying. One of my concerns and, and having spoken to people who are there, some of the staffers for the independent senators, um, they think there's still time for amendments. And when I said, you know, this is a really pressing, urgent bill, they're, they basically say, oh, they always say that. Um, so I don't sense any kind of urgency on the part of the independent senators, which is very worrying, frankly. I think we've had private conversations that some people in government, they think if there's amendments to this bill that it's effectively dead. I don't know if that's the case. But, you know, there's no sense of urgency surrounding this bill. I, you know, we're, we're taping this on April 15th. As of now, I don't think there's any even further hearings scheduled for this committee so they're they're supposed to vote on it on may 30th yeah and the understanding is it'll be out of committee by may 16th so it's not unusual that you wouldn't necessarily find hearings notice of hearings on the website at this point they sometimes are posted fairly close to the actual hearings but yeah i would assume that they're reaching out to witnesses so (laughs) so on the issue though of amendments just to be clear so listeners understand if the senate amends then it has to go back to the commons and that's the real issue right so Amendments can be made in in committee, and then actually in the Senate rules, amendments can be made on third reading, which is a little bit different than the way it works in, in the Commons. And so you could see amendments between now and May 30th uh, that being proposed, and if they attract a majority of votes ultimately in, this, in the plenary Senate, then they become amendments to the bill. They cannot then proceed any further without it going back to the Commons for the Commons to contemplate uh, whether those amendments will be acceptable to the commons. And so there is the prospect of a ping pong. The reality is it's never much of a game of ping pong. Uh, it's usually sort of a ping Not and a then pong. maybe one pong. Right. Um, <laughs> so we'll wait and see. I mean, so one of the issues, I suppose, politically is if the Senate blocks, effectively blocks a piece of government legislation, what new precedent does that set, say, if, if there's a change of government, right? If there's a change of government, new government comes in, under the prior parliament, Senate had stopped a government piece of legislation. Well, with uh, independence in the majority for the foreseeable future, newly inclined to follow that path, then we risk some very considerable legislative gridlock. And so I think there'll be an institutional wariness about something dying in the Senate because the Senate insists upon certain amendments. Now, the, uh, the, the, the broader issue is as it'll be on the common side. If the commons is sort of falling apart with filibustering and the like, would there be enough time for the commons to contemplate any Senate amendments, in which case we may end up with the commons rising for the summer without it getting to it? But I suspect not. I suspect you they... think it's going to happen? I suspect there's enough will, and frankly, there's enough uh, party discipline still, and there's a, still a majority, remember, in the commons to make this happen. The, I suppose the uh, uncertainty is always the prospect of a pop election, but I, that, that uncertainty seems pretty remote. So I'm... That's relieving. Yeah, I'm so I mean, I'm, I'm going to reiterate my promise to the Senate to bake them a cake Yeah. Uh, if they want, uh, if they pass it. Okay, Stephanie, we have, we're running out of time here, so there's one other issue that we probably can squeeze in. We're not going to have time to talk about the budget, which is 
it's too bad. We'll have to schedule a, a sort of separate conversation about that. But remember, uh, must be now three or four months ago, we had a conversation in the wake of uh, Tony Clement resignation from the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. We, that was unfortunate. Yeah, we wondered, you know, so what kind of security clearance does a member of the NISICOP undergo prior to appointment? Uh, and we were really uncertain, and we had sort of a protracted uncertainty conversation on Twitter, and I said, I figured, well, I'll just file an ATIP. And so I filed an access to information request in relation to all uh, security clearance processes for what are known as governor and council appointees, and incidentally, ministers. And what I got back is actually, and this is this news to me, there is actually a a fairly sophisticated protocol for security vetting all governor and council appointees and that is established at the Privy Council office. And in okay, fact, so in English, the, the governor and council's cabinet. Cabinet, which right. Which is basically so, the prime minister. Well, kind of, with sort cabinet. of. Yeah, so so this would be, so governor, so the ministers are sworn in, as you know, by the governor general, right? Yes. So this would be uh, ministers, parliamentary secretaries, associate deputy ministers, deputy ministers, there's a whole long list, um, ambassadors, uh, and they under, undergo uh, a background check uh, that includes many of the same features we've talked about in the past mm-hmm. in relation to uh, security clearances. And so a law enforcement inquiry, a CISA security assessment, uh, Canada Revenue Agency inquiry for compliance-related issues, a financial inquiry, an office of the superintendent of bankruptcy inquiry, a verification of publicly available information on social media and in court records. So these are all done prior to appointment of ministers, not least. And, and actually there is, uh, as I understand from this document, also a background check for judicial appointments, which was news to me. Um, and uh, it wasn't included in the package. And so needless to say, this weekend I filed a new ATIP. Uh, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what kind of vetting is, uh, um, judges undergo because they're not security cleared per se. We've said that before. But they probably want to take a little bit of a right. look into that. Um, and there's some and language here, incidentally, about the vetting that a Supreme Court judge or a chief justice undergoes. It sounds like they have to renew the background check. The Department of Justice has to renew the background check before there's an, an appointment to chief justice or a Supreme Court position. Uh, and so more amplification on that, I think uh, I'm, gonna, I'm certainly seeking that. Uh, so anyway, so I, I wanted to get that out there prior to our conversation w- about NISICOP with our guests uh, because it was a, an issue that we couldn't resolve and couldn't answer in our prior conversation. So the bottom line is, yes, they're, they're security vetted. There you go. That's comforting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we're going to have to keep our long list of things we haven't oh gotten goodness. to. You're yeah. the keeper of the list. Keeper of the list. So we have the we didn't get to the federal budget today, so we'll talk about that next time. Uh, another thing I didn't give a shout out to is Alex Boudelier and BuzzFeed. They've had a really good series of reporting on far right nationalists on social media. We haven't gotten to that. Stuart Bell also had a fantastic article last week that kind of got buried in the avalanche of national security news on um, deadly Canadians, Canadians who go overseas and basically commit murder. So hopefully we'll Yeah, terrorism, have a, basically. Yeah, so we'll have to talk about that. There's a court uh, decision, a federal court decision, which gave out a lot of information. A CSIS warrant case. Yeah, of, yeah. of how actually CSIS does its business. So we'll, we'll, we'll uh, accumulate our warrant cases and do another torrent of warranty episode. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, the dad humor doesn't stop. There was something that you wrote down called the national security twist, the shock cross doctrine. Oh, which yeah. I don't understand what that means. Okay. Yeah. Well, you so can explain th- to our audience yeah, what that so means. Yeah, just, so just a preview here. So this conversation we've been having in the wake of the SNC-Lavalin discussion, which no. it's like <laughs> that click is the noise of everyone turning off their pod- podcast player right <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, so, so the, Including me. <laughs> the, the issue is you know, what sort of interventions can be made in relation to the attorney general in a criminal prosecution. And everyone's been focusing on the Shawcross doctrine. But actually, up to this point, the most prominent 
articulation of the standard made in the House of Commons at the federal level was actually in a 1977-78 case that involved the Official Secrets Act. Right. right. So, uh, and it was became then the Vancouver Sun uh, decision in the in the court, which became essentially the most important case on the Official Secrets Act. Now replaced by the Security of Information Act. So, I'm actually going to write up a little post for our new blog, Ooh, and, and, are then, you and then we can talk secrets? about it. Yeah. Okay, that's a preview there. And then there's like a ton of foreign influence news that we haven't even gotten to yet. I mentioned the new task force, the G7 rapid response mechanisms. And then there was this crazy story of um, the CRTC and the RCMP arrested someone in Toronto for creating malicious Yeah, I'm going to have to look that one up because there's something like that's weird. There's a weirdness to that. I didn't know the CRTC could arrest people. Yeah, they can't. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But but they they do have regulatory powers. And so there might be, it might have been an issue, a warrant issued pursuant to their regulatory powers. I think that was it. So we'll have to figure that one out. So tons of stuff coming up stay tuned but our next podcast will be with uh nisey cop and that's gonna be pretty exciting okay thanks very much everyone and we'll see you very soon